You know, chapter 8 of the book of Daniel is a preacher's nightmare. <laughs> and I want you to understand why, because you, you, have this, you have this complicated vision, and then you've got the angel Gabriel, beginning in verse 15, interpreting the vision, and you've got Daniel, this dude with a PhD in interpreting visions, and yet the chapter closes and Daniel is still entirely clueless about the meaning of the vision. And I'm just thinking, if Daniel can't get it with all of those assets working for him, what hope is there in me explaining it to you this morning, you know, while the children are present and we have this limited amount of time? So that's why Daniel 8 is a preacher's nightmare. But we do have certain advantages available to us that Daniel did not have. For instance, Daniel is in the story. We are reading the story in the Bible. Also, Daniel lives before this story comes to pass. We live after the story has come to pass and can verify the legitimacy of this vision through actual history. So, let's review it and let's see what Daniel sees. Let's also discuss how Gabriel the angel interprets it beginning in verse 15. And let's talk a little bit also about what history records about these events. So, beginning in chapter 8 of verse, verse 1, chapter 8, we have in the third year of Belshazzar, the king, his reign, which, by the way, was around 550 B.C. So this is about 53 years after Daniel had been deported. So Daniel, at this point, is late 60s, maybe 70 years old. And so Daniel is there, and he has this another kind of animal-themed vision. So thus far, in every single chapter... Animals had featured prominently in Daniel's thinking and in Daniel's experience. I, you know, he spends a night in the, in the lion's den. There's just something about the way that D Daniel is processing things that animals always appear to be a part. And so this one starts in verse 3 with this, this rampaging ram that comes onto the scene. And this, this ram has two horns on his head. Now, we know from historical sources that typically a ram symbolizes the, symbolized the empire of Persia. And so it's no surprise in verse 20 when Gabriel interprets the two horns as the king of the Medes and the king of Persia, all of that being comprised of the Persian empire. And in verse 4 he says, No beast could stand before him, that is the ram, and there was no one who could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. Okay, so we have this rampaging ram. He's in the picture. He's come onto the stage. Next thing we know, there is this galloping goat who... <laughs> I mean, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but yeah, this is what happens. This is what the story says. This is what the vision, this is what's happening in the vision. There's this galloping goat that comes from the, from the west, and the galloping goat has this great horn between his eyes. Now, Gabriel, a little later in the chapter, explains in verse 21 that the goat represents the king of Greece, 
And the great horn that he has represents the first king of Greece. So the galloping goat then takes on the rampaging ram in a, in a serious throwdown. And I mean, the goat just totally owns the ram. And in verse 7, it records, And the ram had no power to stand before him. And he cast him down to the ground. So the goat cast the ram down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Now, let's stop right there and let's just go into a little history lesson. So, and this is really fascinating. The great horn, the first Grecian king, was actually Alexander the Great, the great horn. Now, if you don't have any familiarity with Alexander the Great, which, which I didn't either, I was dropping into it this past week, just fascinating stuff. Alexander the Great was a military phenom. He was the general, and he was a general in the Grecian army and became a general at the age of 21 years old. By the age of 26, he had conquered the entire then known world. All of it. In 13, or I'm sorry, in 334 BC, the goat, that's Alexander, met the ram at the Branicus River, and the Grecian army struck the Persian army with such speed. You remember the description, how the ram, or, or how the goat didn't even touch the ground. It just kind of sped over the land. The Grecian army struck the Persian army with such speed that it pushed the Persian army literally into the Branicus River, killing 20,000 men. And you know how many people Alexander lost that day? 100. 100. That was the kind of force, that was the kind of brilliance that Alexander brought to the battlefield. And, and he did it time after time after time. And it was ultimately said of Alexander after he finished his, his entire quest to conquer the world that he sat and he wept because he said there were no worlds left to conquer. And so that's Alexander ruling the world at the top of his game but then all of a sudden, something unexpected happens, and it's recorded in verse 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And that's exactly what happened. Alexander dies quite unexpectedly and quite mysteriously at the young age of 33 and his life, again, forms just another illustration, which has become a theme in the book of Daniel, which is that rulers come, rulers go, grow large. When they grow large, they become vulnerable. When they grow large, they become vulnerable and then dispensable, and then they fall. And Daniel is seeing this in a vision. And so Daniel sees all of a sudden that from this broken horn come four different smaller horns, Gabriel says, each representing four kingdoms that would arise from the, from the death of Alexander. And that's exactly what happened in history. Alexander's kingdom was split into four, each one of them being led by one of his generals. 
And so suddenly, one of the four kingdoms gets, I don't know, a steroid boost and, and, and grows to become this exceedingly great kingdom. And, and one of the four slices of Alexander's empire was indeed Syria. And so Daniel is now seeing forward. Daniel has been looking to 300 BC, and now he fast forwards into like 174 BC, which is not uncommon in prophetic literature where, where the, the prophet would see things in layers. They would be compressed into a vision, but it could ultimately represent a long period of time. And so Daniel sees into 175 BC to the reign of of the wicked Antiochus. This, is, this was the leader of the Syrian empire. I mean, I don't know, I don't even begin to know how to describe the kind of evil that this man rolled in. He was called Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, which literally meant the illustrious god Antiochus. He is, as we read, read on later, and you can do this this afternoon or tomorrow when you have an opportunity to read the middle where Gabriel interprets all this, but he is called by Gabriel the king of the bold face in verse 23 because he suddenly emerges and he emerges with great power. And he, he's described in verses 23, 24, and 25 of having this great power that is not his own. Gabriel says he is successful in all that he does. He says he destroys mighty men in war and mighty men who are saints. He says he is exceedingly proud, particularly great in his own mind. Gabriel goes on to say that he will randomly exterminate people and he will ultimately desecrate the temple. In a word, this man Antiochus is a lunatic. And his madness, and this is what, what becomes very curious, his madness is aimed specifically at the Jewish people. And so Daniel is seeing out in this vision of the emergence of this leader who's going to hate the people of God. In fact, he's going to ultimately execute tens of thousands of Jews. In fact, in a three-day period, he killed over, over 40,000 Jews. And he just wanted to destroy them. He wanted to exterminate them from the earth. He defiled the Jews in every way possible. He entered into their temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. He set a criminal in as the high priest just to mock the Jews, just to mock all that they represented. And, and this is where in the prophetic literature, this portion and this character becomes particularly interesting. Because although this, this vision is representing the emergence of Antiochus, Epiphanes, there's also an apocalyptic twist to it. An apocalyptic twist to this little horn. Because yes, it is fulfilled in the emergence of this, of this leader from Syria, but there's also a part B in that, in that this leader also represents a kind, it is a forerunner to the emergence of the ultimate embodiment of evil on earth in the person of the Antichrist. And we can say that with authority because in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus himself 
refers back to this very passage and then, and then has everybody looking forward. So what's happening is Jesus is meeting with his disciples and his disciples have this question, Lord, what will be the events surrounding your return? And Jesus says to, says to them, quote, in verse 15 of Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation that was spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. And then he says, let the, leader, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So this is just another example of where in the Old Testament there can be a a dual interpretation where one passage can look forward to a point in history and then also look forward all the way to the end times where it can be fulfilled sometime in the Old Testament and then be fulfilled again in the end days. And here's the thing, Daniel's seeing all of this. Daniel sees all of this with this vision that he has, and then he's told in verse 26 that it's all true, seal it up, because it refers to the future. And we're left with this whole thing being dumped on us, not knowing what to make about it, not knowing what to do with it. And so here's the question that we have to resolve at this point is, first, what is Daniel supposed to make of this? And then equally important for us here today is, what are we to make of this 2,500 years later? So I've got two different applications, two different paths I want to walk down, two different directions I want to go with this as we talk about what are we to make of this. And the first point is that we are to trace God's hand in history. And the second point is that we are to trust God's plan in our uncertainty. So trace God's hand in history, trust God's plan in uncertainty. Let's go back to this first point. We are to trace God's hand in in history. Okay, so what's going on? God has given Daniel a vision. God has given Daniel a vision of the rise and fall of these diabolical leaders who create unimaginable carnage in the world. And and I think one of the questions that begins to emerge as we look at this and we read one after another after another is we're just asking, like, why? In other words, why this picture into the future? Why this slice of history? Why is Daniel basically being given a vision, a trailer of the worst moments of the future? I mean, do you think about it this way? You know, if I'm Daniel, I'm saying, Lord, I mean, can we just come to an agreement? If we're going to do this whole vision thing, can we, can we have at least a little bit of good sprinkled in there somewhere? Can I, can I see some weddings out there or maybe a bar mitzvah or two or, a, you know, a, a wine tasting in Tuscany? Anything, give me anything, Lord, except for all these evil leaders that are taking down people and destroying them. Or can we just disable the whole vision thing? I'll just... I'll just be done with that gift because that gift just gives me all these problems and all these visions of bad things. And if I have to know something, do I have to know that God's people are going to do nothing but suffer in the future? You know, there's a sense where he has a sense for the ending, but he, he, he just doesn't know 
how it's going to happen. He's a sense of where, where the whole thing is going. You know, I noticed there's a new Star Trek out. And, and you know, I was thinking that this is, this is kind of like on Star Trek, if I could just go Star Trek on you for a second. This is kind of like in Star Trek, where inevitably... Over the last 50 years, regardless of whether it's Captain Kirk or Captain Picard or whoever it might be, or the new guys, whoever they are, but inevitably, when they come upon their adventure, somebody has to go down to some planet, and so inevitably they'll gather in the transporter room, and there will be all these main characters that step on the transporter, and then there will be this one guy that, that you've never seen before. And you know that there is only one reason why that guy is going down to the planet. I mean, you basically have main crew member, main crew member, main crew member, and alien bait. <laughs> and you know, you know he's... And, and I was just informed of the first service that if you pay careful attention, which I've never done in Star Trek, but if you do, that guy's always wearing red. So... The guy in red. And the guy in red doesn't get it. He doesn't realize, oh, last week, yeah. All these three came back, but the other guy didn't. And they all seem to know one another, and they always seem to go down together. And they come back, and the other guy doesn't. And I'm like, I'm that guy this week. And so, you know, you're, you're screaming to him, don't, don't get on the transporter because you're not going to come back. And you're wearing red, and that's a problem. And it gives you a sense for the ending, but you don't know how it's going to happen. You know it's going to be bad. You just don't exactly know how it's going to unfold. See, Daniel sees that things are going to end badly. He doesn't know when. He doesn't know how. But the main point that God is seeking to get through to him is not that he must know the game plan. It's that he must know the giver of the vision. He doesn't need to know the main point of the drama. He needs to know the director of the drama. And that's where sprinkled throughout chapter 8 are these little, I call them tells. They're little tells about God. They, they, inform us, they inform us of God's hand that is in control of all that is happening. And so it, it begins in verse 1 where God grants this vision to Daniel. And then what does God do in verse 15? He sends Gabriel along to interpret this vision for Daniel. In verse 23, another little tell where it says, when transgressions, or I'm sorry, when transgressors have reached their limit. In other words, Daniel foresees in the vision a time where, where, where God has confined transgressors and he's put a hedge around them. He's created borders for them. In verse 25, it says of the little horn, he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, listen to this, but by no human hand. Again, there's God. There's the shadow of God where the hand of God breaks the power of the little horn. And so what's happening here is Daniel chapter 8 is inviting us into this exhilarating exercise of tracing God's hand in human history, tracing God's hand even as the vision unfolds. But there's another part of this as well. If you dare 
go there with me. And that is tracing God's hand despite the evil. Because what's happening in reality, we touched on this just a few minutes ago, is that Daniel is glimpsing scenes of incomprehensible tragedy. Destruction of a staggering proportion. And, and, and he's just watching it. I mean, it's like, it's like he's sitting in, in AMC watching trailers for the upcoming movies. They haven't come out yet, but this is what's going to happen. This is what is, what is coming. And I mean, have you ever done that? You're, you're just sitting there. And by the way, who is making the decision on the number of trailers to put before a movie? I was at a movie this past week. I don't think there were any less than 12 trailers. Utterly ridiculous. I understand why they want you to put your phone away because you could literally watch a movie on your phone while all the trailers are going on. They don't want the competition, so they say, shut your phone off, put it away. So what's happening is Daniel's having this trailer experience. He's he's watching the upcoming attractions. And this is what he sees, oppression, injustice, genocide, Wickedness of an incomparable extent. And yet the take-home of all of that is not simply, hey, evil's bad. No. The point of all of it is that God knows and that God is at work through the evil for his good things. That God appoints one leader. That God deposes another leader. That God looks out across history and places each actor on the stage at the specific period of time to the degree and to the specificity that he he could even tell Daniel about it hundreds of years ahead of time. And even when politics and policies result in the worst kind of evil, there is a sense where Daniel 8 rings out and reminds us that God knows. That God is at work in it and through it. And we can say that. Listen, we can say that with confidence because we know as Christians that the worst evil to befall the world The greatest injustice in the history of the world that ever occurred, the most treacherous acts of wickedness that ever took place were not the vile acts of the Romans or of the ram or of the goat or of Antiochus or Caesar or the Nazis or the Taliban. The worst evil to befall the world was when the Son of God came and He lived a sinless life, and he upheld the law of God perfectly, and he loved a world that hated him sacrificially, and he was, by the world, denied and betrayed, ultimately tortured, and he was, by the Father, crushed. And the wrath that we deserved for every sin that we committed, every lie that we told, every sexual act that should have never been done, every angry thought, every betrayal that was a part of our life, he poured out the wrath 
God's righteous wrath for those sins, not upon us, not upon those that deserved it, but He poured out that on the righteous Lamb of God. See, the whole irony of the cross and the resurrection is that the innocent bore the punishment for the wicked. That's the irony. That's the tragedy. And you know what? Here's what we have to remember. God was the author of it all. The worst evil of the world. The worst thing that ever happened in the world. And so we live very aware that that when it comes to the evil in the world, when it comes to the unrighteousness and the wicked, there is always another agenda underneath the world's evil. There is always a deeper magic that God is working. You may know the story of Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom was a German woman whose family decided under the conviction of being Christians and the Word of God that they were going to hide Jewish people during the, the occasion of Nazi Germany. And, and their family was ultimately discovered by the Nazis as hiding these Jews. And so her and her sister Betsy were sentenced to the Ravensbrück concentration camp. And they arrived at this concentration camp, and her and her sister were packed into this disgusting, vile, filthy barracks that was absolutely overrun by fleas. You couldn't see because the fleas were so thick around the light. You couldn't lay down on anything without them covering you over. And when Corey Ten Boom arrived, she was just utterly overwhelmed. And yet her sister Betsy was just urging her to consider the goodness of God, urging her to even begin to thank God for His goodness, for how God was working in them and through them as they were in this concentration camp. And Corey said to her, well, how is God being good to us? And, and, and Betsy said, well, listen, we're together here as, as a family, sister and sister. And Betsy said, oh, and I, I have my Bible And so God is able to to give us his word here. And look at all these women that are in this barracks. They're all available to us to share the word of God. And Betsy said, and even the fleas, I know the fleas must play some purpose. I don't understand it, but let's thank God for the fleas. And Corey said, no, I just can't go there. I don't understand it. I I can't wrap my brain around that. But they began reaching out to these women. They began convening Bible studies, and they noticed a strange thing, that they seemed to be able to call a Bible study anytime they want, they wanted to, and they were never interrupted. They were never stopped by any of the guards. They had all the freedom that they wanted, and ladies were getting saved all over the place. And one day, there was an occasion that took place inside the barracks where a guard was supposed to enter. He was required to enter, but he told them he will not enter. And when they asked him, why won't you come into the barracks? He said, because of the fleas. In other words, the very thing that disgusted Corey Ten Boom, understandably, was the very thing that enabled the word of God to ring out so that these other women would hear it, so that these other women would get saved. And somehow Betsy saw that. And she was able to thank God for that. So here's what I'm saying. Whether it's the results of the presidential election in two days, or whether it's the placement of fleas in a concentration camp all the way back in Germany during World War II, 
we can trace the hand of God in history and remember that God is doing a good work through a good plan because He loves us. So we must trace the hand of God in history, which is the first point. And then the second and last point is to trust God's plan in our uncertainty. Trust God's plan in the uncertainty that we have. See, Daniel has just had this life-defining experience where he is being shown by God how hard the future is going to be. God's basically saying, Daniel, as bad as you think it's going to be, oh, it's going to be so much worse. And, And look at Daniel's response in verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Listen, let's pay attention to what's happening here in Daniel's heart. Let's look carefully at at Daniel's response to seeing a future that is filled with evil, a future that is filled with uncertainty, of seeing that, as he looks out, of seeing that times are going to be bad. In fact, times are going to be particularly bad for the people of God. In fact, he knows now that his nation is going to be overthrown repeatedly. And Daniel is appalled by the political leaders that are appointed to power, by the political leaders that are going to be pulling the levers of power in the future, and he is sickened. He is appalled. He grieves. But you know what he does next? He rises. And he goes back to work. Um, Nothing has changed. Daniel doesn't have any additional understanding. In fact, this chapter ends with him saying, I did not understand it. But he goes back to work. I did not understand it. But he gets back to what he's supposed to do. Let me ask you a question. What's your game plan for Wednesday morning? This Wednesday morning, what's your game plan? Listen, regardless of who's elected, there's going to be a group of people in this room who are disappointed. There's going to be a group of people in this room like Daniel who are appalled and do not understand it. I do not understand how we could elect this person. I do not understand how we could go there. How will you respond? Let me encourage us to follow in the footsteps of Daniel. Daniel was sickened. Daniel grieved because he saw the future. I mean, you know, you may be sitting here thinking you see the future with clarity. And maybe you do. And and maybe it scares you. Maybe it alarms you. Maybe it appalls you. I mean, there's a place to be sick. There's a place to be appalled. There's a place to grieve the appointment of leaders and actions of people in power. But then we got to get up. Then we have to rise, just like Daniel did, and move on and get back to work. In other words, we don't have the luxury as Christians to be cynically resigned and pull ourselves off of the field simply because we don't like what we see. You know, to just become a cynic. You know what a cynic is? 
A cynic is a nearsighted atheist. That's what a cynic is. In other words, they don't see God, and they don't see very far out into the future. And so they're nearsighted, but they're also an atheist because that's not really a part of their picture. But what does Daniel do? Daniel gets back to work. He gets back to work because he trusts God. Does the future look bad? Oh, worse than he thought. But he trusts God. He knows God is good. Daniel knows that behind the stupidity and the policies of the worst rulers is a loving God who somehow in his mysterious way causes all things to work together for good to those that love him and those that are called according to his purpose. So Daniel needed to trust even when things were going to decline. Do you feel like things are declining? Daniel needed to trust. He understood that. We need to trust. We need to understand it as well. See, Daniel needed to trust God enough to just get back to work, to pay his bills, train his kids, love his wife. You know, Daniel needed to trust enough to do that. Daniel understood that the world was growing dark, but for him that wasn't a legitimate excuse for his light to go out, for him to grow dark. So, here's my counsel for this Tuesday and this Wednesday. Let's follow in the footsteps of Daniel. In other words, let's trust God. Let's trust God. Let's pull the lever. Trust God. Pull the lever. If you need to, grieve the outcome. Trust God. Pull the lever. Grieve the outcome. And get back to work. Might be discouraging, but we need to get back to work. Might not be the candidate you wanted, but we need to get back to work. You may feel that the entire country is being flushed on the toilet on Wednesday morning, but that's not an excuse for you to back out. We need to get back to work. Because ultimately, God has called us to be at work, whether we are in times of abundance or whether we are in times where things appear to decline. So don't let the fear of the future rob you of the present. Trust God and thank God, even for the fleas, because he is worthy to be trusted and he is at work doing a good thing in a good way because he loves you. Let's pray.